and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the situation on the ground in Israel getting out of hand with vigilante attacks on Palestinians and Israeli Arabs, including an horrific scene in the town of Batyam, where Israelis hauled an Arab man out of his car and lynched him. Joining us to discuss the escalating violence between Israel and Hamas and the escalating violence between Israelis and Israeli Arabs is Usher Kaufman, Director of the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies and a Professor of History and Peace Studies at Notre Dame, who previously taught at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. We will discuss how negligent or even deliberately provocative Prime Minister Netanyahu has been in not anticipating the possibility of clashes with the ending of Ramadan coinciding with the Jerusalem Day March by Israeli nationalists, along with rising tensions over the evictions of Palestinian families in East Jerusalem. With Israel in the midst of forming a new coalition government, the current warlike atmosphere plays into Netanyahu's hands since he wants to cling on to power as long as he can to avoid going to jail. Then we'll look into how much opinion is shifting in this country away from unconditional support for Israel in our politics and in the press and speak with Mitchell Plitnik, a political analyst and frequent writer on the Middle East and U.S. foreign policy and a former vice president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. He is the co-author with Mark Lamont Hill of the new book, Except for Palestine, The Limits of Progressive Politics, and he has an article at 972 Magazine, Equality is Finally Breaching Washington's Debate on Israel-Palestine. Then finally, we will examine the challenge to American democracy the Trump GOP poses now that Liz Cheney has been purged for telling the truth about Trump's big lie and his responsibility for the attack on the Capitol. Joining us is Amanda Marcotte, a feminist author, blogger and politics writer at Salon, where her latest article is Democrats Refuse to Take Advantage of the GOP Civil War. Do they care about democracy? And joining us now is Asha Kaufman, who's director of the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies and a professor of history and peace studies at the University of Notre Dame. Prior to that, he taught at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and from 2000 to 2004, he was a research fellow at the Harry S. Truman Research Institute for the Advancement of Peace and headed its Middle East unit. Welcome to Background Briefing, Usher Kaufman. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And it does seem that what's happening on the ground in Israel and in particularly in Gaza, it seems to be spiraling out of control. Well, there are reports coming in and some shocking video of vigilante attacks on Palestinians and Arab Israelis inside of Israel, including images of a of a man being hauled out of his car and lynched. So do you think that the political authorities, Netanyahu and company, have a, have a grip on this situation? Obviously, passions are running high. Yeah, you are correct. Passions are running high. And uh, currently, the situation inside Israel proper is really grave because uh, this uh, cycle of uh, violence between Hamas and Israel uh, has actually seeped into Israeli society uh, proper. So these images of uh, vigilantes uh, lynching uh, an Arab have now, <laughs> they, they demonstrate really uh, the deterioration of the situation. And they've also been 
equal images, disturbing images of uh, Arabs doing similar things to Jews in the last few days. And it looks like uh, the government is not able or perhaps not interested in controlling uh, this uh, uh, internal strife uh, inside Israel. And the government, of course, is in a position of transition. Netanyahu's nominally in charge, but it looks like there's a new coalition government being formed led by Naftali Bennett, who is even more further to the right than Netanyahu. So what kind of a grip on power does Netanyahu have? So, I mean, there is no new government yet, obviously. We're, Netanyahu is still the prime minister of Israel. He's in a caretaker government. And uh, some journalists in Israel itself have already named this cycle of violence as the uh, Netanyahu's, uh, you know, war, because it is in his interest, actually, to stay in power, to stay as prime minister. And since he lost uh, the ability to form uh, a government uh, last Friday, he may have now uh, may be able to use this uh, uh, violence in order to uh, remain in control because uh, remain in control or at least lead the Israel into uh, another cycle of uh, elections because it is, uh, it is becoming more and more challenging to form uh, a new government in Israel giving this uh, new cycle of violence because the possibility of uh, Bennett and uh, Lapid to form a government relied heavily on a partnership with uh, an Arab Islamist uh, party. And uh, that seems to be now uh, a big challenge because this Arab Islamist party, I don't think is able to, you know, make a commitment to an alliance with either Bennett or uh, Lapid, given uh, what is happening, what has been happening in the recent days in Israel and in uh, Gaza. So to what extent then did Netanyahu either, I don't know whether it was cynicism or, or lack of attention, I mean, surely he must have known that these provocative marches through East Jerusalem by settlers and nationalists shouting death to Arabs, and particularly the Israeli police inside the third holiest shrine in Islam in the Al-Aqsa Mosque, firing, you know, stun grenades, etc., against the Palestinians. That apparently has outraged not just the Hamas, and that's the excuse Hamas is using for launching all these rockets against Israeli citizens and civilians in Tel Aviv and Lod, etc., but the average Palestinians are outraged by this too. So how much did Netanyahu let this thing get out of control earlier? Because, you know, we know that there's a lot of tensions over the case that the Supreme Court had delayed on the settlers wanting to take over and evict a bunch of Palestinian families in the Sheikh Jarrah region of um, East Jerusalem. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know how to what extent uh, Netanyahu himself was conniving the whole, uh, you know, deterioration of the situation. But there is no question that uh, in the past two years, the entire political system in Israel has been taken hostage by Netanyahu's uh, survival struggle to remain in control of uh, the government, to remain his state prime minister while his uh, trial for corruption is uh, being uh, held. So if there was a functional government in Israel, 
about two months ago, uh, you know, uh, security cabinet should have met together with Netanyahu, looking at uh, the Jewish calendar, looking at the Muslim calendar, and uh, realizing that uh, both calendars are actually converging on a critical time period uh, uh, for Jews and for uh, Muslims. Ramadan and the conclusion of Ramadan on the one hand, and uh, Israel's Memorial Day, Independence Day, and uh, Jerusalem Day, all events that for Jews and Muslims in the country are really important, and Jerusalem plays a, a really significant role in the, the, you know, the national imagination of both communities. So a responsible government would have said, oh, this is really a, a critical moment that we need to be attentive to, we need to be sensitive to. We have to make sure that uh, we are paying attention to the possibility of uh, escalation. Instead, what Netanyahu did for his own political survival was empowering uh, Kahana uh, affiliates, empowering them, and in fact, uh, facilitating uh, their entrance into the parliament, into the Knesset. So now we have in the Israeli Knesset uh, a party that uh, identifies with uh, really fascist right-wing uh, ideology and that, uh, only that has only elevated the flames in recent uh, uh, days. So it's almost, uh, of course, we have now the hindsight, uh, you know, we see 2020 uh, in hindsight. But uh, there is no question that uh, this current uh, uh, violence serves uh, Netanyahu's uh, uh, political interests and uh, it feeds on a growing or uh, an, uh, a process in which uh, there has been growing escalation uh, in terms of rhetoric and uh, verbal violence and now translated into physical violence against the Arab citizens of Israel. And uh, in the last two days, we have seen Arab uh, citizens of Israel, you know, responding and with their own violence against the uh, Jewish, uh, Jewish targets, in, um, particularly in mixed uh, cities in uh, Israel, that have known for decades, you know, policy of neglect of uh, their the Arab populations. And again, I'm speaking with Asha Kaufman, who's director of the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies and a professor of history and peace studies at the University of Notre Dame. And prior to that, he taught at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And from 2000 to 2005, he was a research fellow at the Harry S. Truman Research Institute for the Advancement of Peace and headed its Middle East unit. So you can draw a sort of line, can't you, from what Netanyahu has either willfully neglected or, or neglected in terms of... And of course, I mentioned earlier the outrage that the Palestinians feel about the Israeli police firing stun grenades inside Al-Aqsa. That happened, right. of course, on the end of at the end of Ramadan as well. And you yes. mentioned clearly you've got this clash of these important holidays, and particularly Jerusalem Day, which celebrates the '67 war recapture of Jerusalem. So this is not surprising. I mean, how much do you think there's these sort of vigilantes like the ones that lynched the the Arab who hauled him out of the car feel there's a kind of license to kill coming from the government or is this just a result of the extreme 
tensions where you've got rockets raining down indiscriminately on Israeli cities? You know, the entire discourse in Israel, public discourse in Israel, has become more and more inflammatory, and there is more and more legitimacy to uh, make really outrageous, uh, racist statements against the Arab citizens of the country. That has been led by top uh, political leaders in the country, uh, and uh, in some instances has also been led by Netanyahu. It's only in the last few months before the last election cycle that all of a sudden Netanyahu remembered that uh, Arabs are, in theory, uh, equal citizens uh, in uh, Israel, and he paid some lip service to their uh, legitimacy and uh, calling them, uh, trying to get uh, the Arab vote uh, in support of him. But uh, there has been now really an escalation in the last uh, few years of uh, really inflammatory rhetoric against the Arab citizens of uh, Israel. Uh, and uh, it is not only done by uh, these uh, Kahana affiliates, but uh, by senior members of uh, Likud and other parties in uh, on the right wing of Israeli politics that have been saying so. So I think uh, these vigilantes that we can now see on TV and their actions in the town of uh, Batyam are uh, feeling that they are empowered by this kind of uh, uh, rhetoric. It is now legitimate uh, discourse in Israel to make uh, vehement uh, racist uh, statements against Arabs uh, in uh, Israel coming from uh, the center of the political uh, of political parties in Israel. So do you expect there to be an international backlash to this? And will it have any impact on Netanyahu and Israeli politics? I think uh, about international backla backlash, it's a question of how the uh, United States will respond uh, to it. Um, and I try to separate between uh, the internal uh, dynamics that are happening now in Israel and the, the, the conflict between Hamas and uh, Israel. I think the international community can, re can respond and should respond to the conflict between Israel and Hamas and force a ceasefire. And uh, this is where uh, there could be and should be pressure on both parties to reach uh, a ceasefire. Uh, internally, I'm not sure that the international community has any capacity to intervene, and uh, it is a, a really grave internal Israeli matter that is not going to be resolved, uh, and perhaps never will, anytime soon. In fact, what we see now is that uh, how interconnected everything is in uh, Israel and uh, Palestine, that uh, a conflict involving uh, Hamas in Gaza and the uh, settlers taking over uh, Palestinian housing in East Jerusalem is tied to grievances of uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel. And uh, all of these issues are, in fact, interconnected. From an Israeli, Jewish-Israeli perspective, there's always been an attempt to separate the Palestinian citizens of Israel from the other parts of uh, the conflict. But uh, we have witnessed in the last uh, few days a reminder that, in fact, uh, that it is impossible to create this uh, separation. Uh, that uh, 
you have to realize that for Palestinian citizens of Israel, even those that have integrated very well inside Israeli society, and there are hundreds of thousands of them that have integrated really well into Israeli economy, Israeli politics, that have become, you know, have adopted some of uh, you know, the, the general Israeli cultural habits, if you will. Uh, even for them, the, at the end of the day, there are Palestinians and the Palestinian grievances from East Jerusalem to Gaza are their grievances uh, as well. So it is a reminder for uh, those of us who thought that somehow you can separate between uh, these uh, communities. If you want to think about it from the perspective of years, you know, do you, how do you address this conflict from 1967 or from 1948? So these uh, conflicts internally inside Israel now are a reminder to us that you have to think about this conflict as a whole, starting with the, the 1948 war and the displacement of uh, Palestinians uh, from the country on the whole. And that uh, the Arab citizens of Israel, Palestinian citizens of Israel are part of uh, this, uh, uh, part of, the, of a problem that needs to be addressed. Well, Nasha Kaufman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you, Asher. And again, I've been speaking with Asher Kaufman, who's director of the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies and a professor of history and peace studies at the University of Notre Dame. And prior to that, he taught at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. And from 2000 to 2005, he was a research fellow at the Harry S. Truman Institute for the Advancement of Peace and headed its Middle East unit. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into how much opinion is shifting in this country away from unconditional support for Israel in our politics and in the press. As part of WMNF's mission calendar, we are paying special attention to mental health awareness in May. We know many listeners or their loved ones are struggling. If you need help, you can reach out to the Crisis Center of Tampa Bay. The number is 211. That is 211. WMNF is here for you, too. Thanks for listening. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Mitchell Plitnik, who's a political analyst, frequent writer on the Middle East and U.S. foreign policy, and the former vice president at the Foundation for Middle East Peace, the director of the U.S. office of Bethlehem, and the co-director of Jewish Voices for Peace. He is the co-author with Mark Lamont Hill of the new book, Except for Palestine, the Limits of Progressive Politics. And he has an article at 972 Magazine, Equality is Finally Breaching Washington's Debate on Israel-Palestine. Welcome to Background Briefing, Mitchell Blitnick. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And I spoke the other day with Gideon Levy, at uh, Haaretz, a columnist who mm -hmm. writes the, the weekly Twilight Zone column on Gaza and the occupied West Bank. And he seemed to think that the leadership in, in Israel were going to try and calm things down as they are in a transition 
to get a form a new government. Mm. But it looks as though things are escalating. And yeah. what's your sense? Do you think that this is just going to get out of hand or are there any ways to stop the escalation? Well, it's um, unfortunately, it's going to be very difficult to stop the escalation. I think what, what Gideon was probably looking at, I'm certainly not in any way speaking for him, but what he was probably looking at is the fact that um, the Israeli political leadership probably did not intend this escalation. I think they did not expect uh, the response to their actions uh, in, in and around Jerusalem uh, that they got from, from Hamas. Um, but once they did, it presented certain political avenues for, the, for Netanyahu uh, to both delay issues with uh, the, the, uh, the recent election um, as well as just maintain his, you know, hopefully for him, put uh, get, build his own constituency up uh, as the the tough security guy. So um, the way that this usually uh, gets turned, you know, the, the the heat here in this situation get, gets turned down is some combination of diplomacy for, for by the United States and usually Egypt. Uh, Egypt has been trying to do that with very little success because the United States really hasn't been involved. Um, and it, it's difficult to see how much the United States can get involved at this point because they don't even have an ambassador to Israel. Uh, they don't have anyone who's a, a sort of consul or, or envoy to, to the Palestinians. They just sent uh, Hadi Amir, the undersecretary of state uh, um, for for the Middle East, um, over to the region, but but Hattie, who's who I I've met a few times, and I know is a smart guy and knows what's going on, and and you know he's a good uh, envoy, but he just doesn't have the office. He doesn't have the the gravitas behind him uh, to really uh, affect anything here. So there's no ambassador, and there's no clear direction from the White House. Um, on the one hand, you know Biden has talked about. Uh, in general, sort of human rights, and then when it comes to this, it's Israel has all right to defend itself. And uh, the the fact is that unless Israel um, removes the massive police presence from Jerusalem, that's what Hamas demanded, and it wasn't uh, an unreasonable demand. Uh, if they and and back off from their attempts to take over, to allow settlers to take over uh, the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood in Jeruz in East Jerusalem, uh, it's going to be very very difficult to uh, to use the normal the usual dip diplomatic maneuvers that that could tone down this conflict, at least not until a lot more damage has been done. So, in the past few days, Hamas and Islamic Jihad in Gaza have fired about 500 missiles and that's actually probably old data and that some of them have been raining down on Tel Aviv and mostly on Lod. The Israelis have closed their main airport, Ben Gurion International Airport. There have been a number of Israeli casualties. There have been a number of actually Israeli-Arab casualties. There's one tragic story of a father and his daughter were killed by one of yeah. these Hamas rockets because they didn't have a bomb shelter in their village that the Israeli government didn't recognize. And meanwhile, right next door, imported Thai laborers were given a bomb shelter. Mm -hmm. So, you know, obviously Hamas is a pretty nasty organization. Hamas itself in Arabic means zeal. 
and they're not nice people by any stretch of the imagination. But there is apparently a widespread revulsion and lots of demonstrations from Israeli Arabs who are demonstrating because they feel that the Israeli police actions in the third holiest shrine of Islam, the Al-Aqsa mosques, were absolutely unacceptable where the Israeli police fired stun grenades inside the mosque. And it seems like, along with the Sheikh Jarrah evictions, this has really set the Palestinians off. And, of course, you've also had these marches in Jerusalem on Jerusalem Day and before where you have these right-wing youths and settlers marching through Arab quarters chanting death to Arabs. So Mm -hmm. how much do you feel that the Palestinians have been provoked into this situation? You mentioned earlier you didn't think, as Gideon didn't think, that the political authorities wanted this situation and they'd like to calm it down. But it seems like the Netanyahu and company aren't able to restrain their own police and their own settler movement. Yeah, I think I think there's a couple of things that that were happening here. I think one is that um, there was a lot of miscalculation uh, in the Netanyahu government uh, beforehand. That uh, for I, I think to some extent they bought into their own rhetoric about how their own Palestinian citizens, um, you know, could be essentially bought off uh, to to ignore some of the issues of occupation. Um, it turned out that was not the case, especially when it comes to Jerusalem, which is one issue that uh, you know certainly Palestinians on all sides of the Green Line and outside the region all you know are all feeling pretty strongly about. So that the miscalculations, I think, were not only about the Sheikh Jarrah area, but also about uh, the impediments to uh, Palestinian access to the Al-Aqsa Mosque during the month of Ramadan. I think that really set off a lot of ill will uh, for Palestinians, again, on, on all sides of the Green Line. So I think that was the first miscalculation. The second, as I mentioned earlier, was Hamas's reaction, uh, which they didn't expect. Once that started, though, I think uh, the Netanyahu government probably lost a lot of its incentive to try and tamp any of this down. Uh, and ha- they've been adding fuel to the fire ever since and I think you know uh, are trying to turn the violence, in a sense, to their own advantage uh, politically. And that has caused obvious escalations uh, throughout the region. And notably, I think the one place that hasn't really seen a lot of... uh, uh, violence is the West Bank outside of the Jerusalem area um, because the Palestinian Authority has been clamping down to make sure that that doesn't happen. Uh, this is not something that Israel uh, tends to to want to highlight, especially because rhetorically Netanyahu has uh, aimed a lot of his uh, a lot of his ire more at the Palestinian Authority over the past couple of years than even than the than against uh, Hamas. But uh, I mean, clearly within Israel. Uh, we're seeing Palestinian citizens bearing a lot of the brunt of this. The um, the the clashes in Lud, Romney, and other uh, mixed, both uh, Palestinian towns and mixed uh, Palestinian Jewish towns, have been have been very very ugly. Some of the most violent ones, actually, that we've seen anywhere. So the the idea that Palestinians within Israel are somehow disconnected from Palestinians in the occupied territories, I think, was one that a lot of Israeli politicians were trying to sell before and has clearly been proven to be untrue. 
And again, I'm speaking with Mitchell Plitnik, who's a political analyst, frequent writer on the Middle East and U.S. foreign policy and a former vice president at the Foundation for Middle East Peace, the director of the U.S. office of B'Tselem and the co-director of Jewish Voices for Peace. He's the co-author with Mark Lamont Hill of the new book, Except for Palestine, The Limits of Progressive Politics. And he has an article at 972 Magazine, Equality is Finally Breaching Washington's Debate on Israel-Palestine. And again... I don't have the latest statistics, Mitchell, but there have been over 150 uh, Israeli airstrikes in Gaza. That was mm. as of Tuesday afternoon. At least 35 deaths. A lot of children were killed. And it is obviously getting worse as we speak. And uh, you mentioned in terms of your article at 972 Magazine about mm-hmm. equality is finally reaching Washington's debate. The White House... In fact, Jen Psaki, the press secretary, in being questioned about it yesterday, was saying that U.S. officials, meaning White House, Biden perhaps, and others, have spoken candidly with Israeli officials about the eviction of Palestinians from East Jerusalem. And then she went on to say, we believe Palestinians and Israelis deserve equal measures of freedom, security, dignity, and prosperity. That sounds uh, pretty n- new to me. I don't think I've seen... Uh, any uh, American president and their White House speak in such even-handed ways. Have you? Um, I, I would actually, yeah, I would actually differ with that a bit. I, I, the the rhetoric is a little bit more uh, even-handed. Uh, it's reflective, I think, of the Biden administration's attempts that are not going very well right now to deprioritize Israel-Palestine and to sort of extricate itself from or at least keep a certain distance from the from the conflict as a political issue. But I mean, the reality is, in the end, it's policy. It's it's a lot less about what is said and um, a lot more about what is done. So so one, I think, uh, major issue, if we if we do just want to look at statements, uh, we can look at the way uh, Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, has been talking about this. And he has been repeating the usual American talking points about about uh, Israel's right to defend itself, um, and it, which of course it has, and uh, Israel's right to security, which of course it has, but not talking about, uh, uh, in, in contrast to Jen Psaki, not talking about uh, Palestinian right to defend uh, themselves or Palestinians' right to security. And uh, you know, I think this is this is where the problem comes in, because in in the end. Uh, no matter how you how we try to take this apart, the United States is Israel's ally and a very strong one, uh, and they are staunchly standing by their ally. And in the you know they they have talked about how uh, Hamas must stop the the rocket fire, and certainly the indiscriminate rocket fire aimed at civilian targets is unacceptable. It's, it's illegal under international law. But Israel is also for its part. Uh, they intentionally targeted a residential apartment building. That is a, a unambiguous and unambiguous war crime, and uh, one that Israel made no bones about committing. And when we consider the fact that Hamas's weapons and their their armaments, they are limited in how much they can even control them, whereas Israel can decide what targets it wants to hit. You know, the, this certainly would call for the United States to tell Israel, hey, pull back. Don't be, you know, don't be blowing up apartment buildings. There, dozens and dozens of families were made homeless in that attack. So 
that reflects the same old double standard, even though this administration may look a lot more liberal, I guess, than certainly than the previous one. Uh, but in the end, you know, they are not they're they're not doing anything to hold Israel back. While as the exchange of fire goes on, they are being heavily critical of the Palestinians. But how much are they hampered by having to undo a lot of what Trump did, with particularly with Pompeo's declaration that Israeli settlements are not inconsistent with international law, Trump's ludicrous deal of the century plan, reopening the PLO mission in Washington, reestablishing mm-hmm. U.S. consulates, etc., funding UNRWA, mm-hmm. which Biden has done to some degree. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, obviously Biden's got a lot on his plate. The last mm-hmm. thing he needs is foreign policy nightmares, which this one is now starting to look like. And, of course, you've got an election transition in Israel. My mm-hmm. understanding from what Gideon was telling me uh, a couple of days ago was that, that it looks like Naftali Bennett might form a government, and he's just so yeah. much further to the right than even Netanyahu. It's a frightening prospect. Yeah, he is. On the other hand, uh, Bennett, if he does form a government, would also be dependent on more centrist or at least center-right parties than Netanyahu is. So it, it's kind of six of one, half a dozen of the other on, on, on what that would mean in terms of policy. Um, and you're right that Biden you know, certainly has a, a lot to undo with regards to uh, the things that Trump did. thing is that Biden has already said he's not going to undo some of them. He's not going to reverse Trump's decision to move the uh, U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. He's not going to uh, reverse Trump's declaration of U.S. recognizing is, uh, Jerusalem as Israel's capital. And when we talk about reopening the PLO mission in Washington, that's actually something I think Biden does intend to do, but it's tricky uh, because of various U.S. laws that really what Trump did was simply allowed them to be triggered. Uh, and once they're triggered, they're much harder to undo. So there is all of that. That being said, you know, the, the situation we're in right now could have been diffused much earlier had there been uh, at least a U.S. ambassador uh, to Israel who could have been in constant contact with the Netanyahu government and telling them not to, um, not to escalate matters in Jerusalem. I mean, we need to go back and, and consider that a lot of this stems from the confrontations at the Al-Aqsa Mosque where Israeli forces opened fire, uh, injuring hundreds of people in Jerusalem in the mosque itself, um, and that was uh, that was a severe provocation, one that was building for several days, and the United States did and said nothing about it, in part because there was no one there to, to actually meet with the Israeli government and say, hey, back off of this, which we have seen American presidents from, by the way, from both parties do in the past. So... That is a product of, again, of, of Biden's desire to deprioritize this, to not invest political capital in this. It's something that's been tried by other presidents. It never works because unless you're willing to actually change U.S. policy towards one where we really aren't uh, supporting Israel's occupation, then the sort of benign neglect that Biden was trying actually turns into even more myopic support for the occupation. Well, Mitchell Plitnik, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having me, Ian. 
And again, I've been speaking with Mitchell Plitnik, who's a political analyst, frequent writer on the Middle East and U.S. foreign policy, and a former vice president at the Foundation for Middle East Peace and the director of the U.S. Office of B'Tselem and the co-director of the Jewish Voices for Peace. He's the co-author with Mark Lamont Hill of the new book, Except for Palestine, The Limits of Progressive Politics, and he has an article at 972 Magazine, Equality is Finally Breaching Washington's Debate on Israel-Palestine. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the challenge to American democracy that Trump GOP poses and how much the Democrats are prepared to make an issue out of it. You are listening to the background briefing here on WMNF Tampa. And on midpoint at noon today, Shelley and Janet will discuss efforts to end the opioid excuse me, the opioid epidemic with guests and state representative Daryl Roussan and former Representative Jennifer Webb, Director of the Opioid Project Tampa Bay. It's coming from the field that this ain't exactly real, or it's real, but it ain't exactly there. From the war against disorder, from the sirens night and day, from the fires of the homeless. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Amanda Marcotte, who's a feminist author, blogger, and a politics writer for Salon. She's the author of Troll Nation, How the Right Wing Became Trump-Worshipping Monsters, Set on Rat-Effing Liberals, America, and Truth Itself. And her latest article at Salon is Democrats Refuse to Take Advantage of the GOP Civil War. Do They Care About Democracy? Welcome to Background Briefing, Amanda Marcotte. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And on Tuesday night, Lynn Cheney made a very powerful speech in the House. And, of course, what happened was that all of the, her Republican colleagues, they just were slinking out of the place quietly because they couldn't face the fact that she was speaking truth to these cowards and and bootlickers who have this supine fealty to this monstrous fraud, Trump. So it just feels like we're at this extraordinary moment where, as you point out in your article, you know, and as Lynn Cheney's talking about, that you know, American democracy is on trial and it's facing its biggest test probably. And yet I don't see the Democrats, and you certainly don't see them, rallying to this issue. I mean, this. I guess Biden's got so much on his plate, but it would seem to me that this would be the number one priority to fight for democracy at home and abroad. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, all of the things being equal that Biden and Pelosi and Schumer, Chuck Schumer would agree with you. It's just that they don't have the votes right now to pass legislation that would stop the Republican war on democracy. So they're letting their prior, their legislative priorities be sculpted by what they have votes for. And so that's the infrastructure bill. And that's kind of traditional politics, right? You, you get that low hanging fruit, get yourself some victories and, 
you know, if you, the harder stuff, if you get around to it, good. If you don't, oh well. But the current situation is such a hair on fire emergency that those sort of traditional political calculations are ill-advised at best. So your article, of course, focuses on Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin. And I'm not sure about what makes these two tick, really, and I'm, it is a bit mysterious. But the one thing that I've heard about Manchin is that he would like to be able to peel off a Republican, just one, it would be enough to, to put the fig leaf of bipartisanship, and then he might come aboard the idea of getting rid of the filibuster or modifying it or making... He actually made a statement a while back that he was in favour of the standing filibuster, the Mr Smith comes to Washington type of filibuster. So is it possible that out of this Cheney situation, maybe... Do you think any Republicans are going to defect in the Senate? Uh, no. I think what we have seen is that a couple of Republicans have made lackluster defences of of Cheney, but by and large, I think the main result of what's going to, of the the main result of what happened to Liz Cheney is going to be that every Republican now realizes if they do anything more than make a couple of lame arguments in defense of democracy, they're also going to get thrown out of the party. So I, the very notion that you can chip off a Republican vote when <laughs> We've seen with our own eyes what happens to any Republican who does even the slightest defense of democracy is that they lose all their power and all their position and everything is is beyond ridiculous. I, I you know, Joe Manchin is living in a fantasy land if he thinks that's possible. Well, there was, of course, on Tuesday a Senate meeting, a kind of face off, I guess, between the Democrats and and the Republicans with Chuck Schumer on one side of the table and Mitch McConnell on the other, where they were trying to come to some kind of agreement on the parameters of SB1, which is the Senate version of HR1, which is the <laughs> the means by which you could end all of this or do an end run around all of this Republican voter suppression. And Jerry, well, you can't do anything about gerrymandering, but you can certainly do something about a lot about what's happening. And it goes deeper into dark money and other aspects of our broken democracy. Of course, McConnell says this whole thing is a democratic power grab. There was some suggestions on the part of Democrats that there were areas of compromise. Do you see anything, anything coming out of that? No, I mean, whenever, I think it's the rule of thumb, not even rule of thumb, I mean, standard... The standard thing to understand with Republicans is if they negotiate, say they're going to negotiate, take a meeting, do anything of that nature, all they're doing is trying to run out the clock. They have no intention ever voting for anything a Democrat puts up. Um, if they pretend that they are going to vote for it, um, that is merely an opportunity for them to just take a bunch of meetings and kick the the vote down the road so that it never gets scheduled. It's just clock. It's just running out the clock. So if Democrats give them meetings and let them waste their time, it just is further evidence that Democrats are, are failing to understand the seriousness of this moment because 
there is no such thing as a concession that would actually get Republican votes on board because the whole point of this is to make sure that nothing that Democrats want to get done gets through the legislation. Which is exactly what uh, Mitch McConnell said recently. Yeah. (laughs) He doesn't even hide it. He pretends to their face he's up for negotiations and he turns around and tells the right-wing press that he would never, ever allow a vote on anything. Yeah. Again, I'm speaking with Amanda Marcotte, who's a feminist author, blogger, and politics writer for Salon. She's the author of Troll Nation, How the Right Became Trump-Worshipping Monsters Set on Rat-Effing Liberals' American Truth Itself. And the latest article at Salon is Democrats Refuse to Take Advantage of the GOP Civil War. Do they care about democracy? Now, curiously enough, Matthew Dowd, a Republican um, strategist who was behind the successful re-election campaign of George W. Bush's in 2004 and the successful election campaign of Arnold Schwarzenegger out here for governor of California. He's been railing mostly on MSNBC saying that Biden's top first priority should be the defense of democracy itself and to rally the American people about what the Republicans are doing now. Because it's not out of the question that they could win and take the House and Senate back in 2022 and the White House in 2024. So, there, and he's, he's arguing that defending American democracy and saving it from this sort of fascist onslaught by the Republicans and, and this vengeful ex-president who they're all sort of stepping in, in line behind also resonates abroad because you have people like Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin who are telling the world that democracy doesn't work and their kind of uh, authoritarian governments are much more effective and efficient. So it's a broader struggle both in terms of the outside world and the situation here at home. So can Biden really rally the American people around this? I mean, you've got a 100 so Republicans now coming out on Thursday with apparently some kind of plan to form a third party of kind of the Republicans that we used to know, our fathers and grandfathers Republicans. Is there anything to work with there? I mean, maybe, maybe not. But I think that the main thing here is that you have to try because... The only other option is to just roll over and let them terminate our democracy as we know it. And so it could fail for sure, but it will fail if you try. It definitely could fail. I mean, the number of Republicans who are willing to defect to the pro-democracy side is pretty small. You know, 100 doesn't mean 100 congressional Republicans. That's like... A hundred people who've been Republican leaders in the past, most of whom are former officials, right? But if you don't try, you absolutely will fail. And at this point, to fail means to just basically give up democracy and to give up any hope of Democrats having anything resembling power again because... that's what Republicans are trying to do. They're trying to enshrine permanent minority rule. And they are getting real close, real close. I mean, it's sort of uncharted territory for sure. We don't know for a fact how effective 
these laws they're passing in places like Georgia and Florida are going to be in terms of forcing, in terms of making sure that votes don't voters don't get to the polls and, and making sure that when if they do vote that their votes don't get counted. But I have to say, when you look at some of these laws, it's, it's pretty serious. It's pretty serious what we're looking at, especially in terms of Republicans have moved organized around Trump's insistence that local election officials should be able to just throw out votes on the merest whiff of an accusation of fraud from Republicans. And, and that's a, a pretty scary thought, thought, but that's kind of where they're heading right now. Well, in effect, they're getting two bites at the, at the apple. The first go around is they suppress the vote with all kinds of sort of Jim Crow-like tactics. And then the second bite of the apple is that once the votes are in, the Republican partisans get to count and certify the votes. And we see what's happening now in Arizona with that farce going on. So the idea of these kind of people counting the votes is that's the end of democracy. So I don't know whether the ludicrous nature of what's happening in Arizona is resonating. At least some of the Republican senators who voted for this farce are now having second thoughts. Is there a name and shame possibility here? I just don't know how much this resonates as as the key issue that it is it is the most important issue of all but it may not really be resonating with the public in the way that maybe some pocketbook issues do is there a way do you think to break through i mean the idea that we're having it you know that liz cheney is now our champion of democracy given her background in ultra conservative politics is kind of sad really that the democrats aren't rising to the occasion i mean in a sense it doesn't matter if the public rallies because if laws to stop the republicans from doing what they're doing on a state level to if, if they don't pass the for the people act and other legislation to keep republicans from stealing elections it's not going to matter what the public thinks after this it, it doesn't matter if the public likes an infrastructure bill if the public isn't allowed to vote. And, like, this is this is the end of caring what the public thinks. That's the whole point of what the Republicans are doing. They know that the public doesn't like them. They know that they can't win free and fair elections, so they're trying to stop them from happening. And so if the concern is what the public thinks, then we need to have a future where that continues to be important. And I, it's just a very odd, I, I recognize that this is like difficult for politicians who spent their entire life kind of thinking about what the public wants and trying to do that and trying to be popular. But popularity doesn't matter if there's no way for it to affect the final results at the, at the ballot box. But... If you go to a casino in Las Vegas and there's a big sign in front of the casino saying, this casino is rigged, would you go into the casino? It is rigged, in, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> we yeah. know that. The house always wins. But I'm trying to give an analogy of how and what kind of idiots we are to accept a situation because it's so clear that the Republicans do not want to compete, they want to cheat. And that is their path to power. And they've given up on trying to broaden their base. 
and that is just as clear as day. And the idea that they're following this dreadful fraud is beyond belief. And this man who is responsible for inciting the attack on American democracy, the worst attack on this country since 1814, it's just amazing that there are so few voices speaking out. But again, is I'm just thinking in terms of of all this effort to go to the to vote, and yet it's so clear that it's not a level playing field. And the only way to overcome that, I imagine, is a massive turnout. Is that the only card the Democrats get to play? A massive turnout in 2022, and that goes against tradition. I mean, that was the card that we that the Democrats had to play in 2020. If they don't pass HR1, I don't know that they even have that card anymore because again, the problem is in Georgia at least, they've passed a law saying that the state legislature has the right to throw out the elections board of any district that they want and replace it with their own people. So turnout can be massive but, you know, I, I live in Philadelphia and, you know, we had that situation here where there was, where Trump just put this huge pressure campaign on the state legislature to basically take all the votes of Philadelphia and just throw them in the trash. And he wasn't able to get that done because the law wouldn't allow it. But their Republicans are changing the law in some of these states so that that can in fact happen next time. And so I think we'd be looking at a situation where even massive turnout and, and very clear wins with huge margins may not be enough. And, you know, this is how, this is how it goes in some place like Russia, right? <laughs> and that's clearly what Trump was imagining for himself. And he just never amassed the kind of political change during his time in office to make that happen for him. But now he's kind of created a template for what he imagines that would look like. And the Republicans are falling in line with that. And so I, I do think most Democrats on Capitol Hill understand the seriousness of the situation, which is why the For the People Act was H.R. 1, the first bill that was brought in front of the House. It's just they, they don't have enough votes unless a handful of... You've been listening to Background Briefing with Ian Masters. Coming up after NPR News, on Midpoint, Shelley and Janet will discuss efforts to end the opioid epidemic with guests State Representative Daryl Roussan and former State Representative Jennifer Webb, director of the Tampa Bay Opioid Project Tampa Bay. As always, thank you for listening and supporting WMNF 103.5.